Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Can a revolution be a business? Can a craft be a commodity? Can cachet be cashed in on? These questions swirled furiously through the fecund firmament of the craft brewing industry at the outset of the 21st century, Taplines listener. By the time the aughts rolled around, this weird little community of home brewers, beardos, slow foods enthusiasts, and the like was no longer that weird or little. Microbrewing, as many were still calling it, had weathered a boom and bust cycle in the 90s and come back stronger and more mainstream than ever. From 2005 onward, the number of independent breweries across the country started the upward climb it remains on to this day. The American drinking public had gotten the taste for hoppy, malty, full-flavored beers, and they were enamored with craft brewers' visions of David and Goliath's struggle with loathsome corporate macro brewers. The movement was in full swing, but Goliath was watching. In 2011, Anheuser-Busch InBev acquired Chicago's Goose Island Brewing Company. It was the most powerful corporate counterpunch to the craft brewing revolution to date, and it reignited a snarling debate over the ethics of individual firms selling out their craft brewing comrades. When news of the sale broke, John Laffler was heading up Goose Island's vaunted barrel aging program. A couple years later, he'd go on to co-found Chicago's beloved off-color brewing, where he's still putting out award-winning beers a decade later. Today, he joins the show to revisit The Room, the moment, the vibe at Goose Island when craft beer's corporate co-option hit a whole new gear. It's John Laffler, it's Bourbon County Stout, it's Goose Island getting sold, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Joining Tap Lines all the way from Chicago, Illinois, we've got John Laffler. John, welcome to Tap Lines, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. John, you've got a barrel uh, behind you. I think that you've got a beer in your hand. This is very appropriate. You're sort of uh, en media res, uh, as they say. Um, thanks so much for coming on the pod. We've already uh, you know, sung your praises. Uh, our listeners are excited to hear what you have to say, and we've got a lot to get into. But um, why don't we just you know, begin with the beginning? I think you're taking uh, this call or you're recording this podcast from inside off color. Is that right? Yes, sir. We're over here at our, we have two facilities. This is our tap room location called Mousetrap, where we do all of our uh, wild fermentations and predominantly uh, wood aging. Uh, we do do some wood aging of production, but all of our wild stuff is over here. And right behind me are a bunch of our fooders. There's more in front of us. There's a whole shit ton of wood over here, which is, which is fun to play with. <laughs> yeah, right on. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Off Color, I mean, you guys have had a lot of success over the over the years, but obviously not everyone has encountered Off Color. What uh, what's the elevator pitch for some for a drinker who's never encountered your beer before? What should they expect? Oh, for sure. Uh, we are a very fermentation focused brewery, um, so we don't produce a lot of hoppy beers. We don't produce a lot of just like way over the top stuff. We really rely on fermentation and yeast characteristics as a way of uh, expressing the beers we want to express and the flavor profiles that we're shooting for. Uh, we tend to look at new emerging styles and uh, kind of look at what we want beer to be in the future versus where beer has been. But that being said, we also do a fair amount of historic beers 
Um, we also have gotten to work with a number of non-traditional uh, collaboration partners, including the Field Museum of Natural History here in Chicago, uh, which is one of the preeminent world history museums in the world. Uh, so we produce actually what I'm working now, which is Tooth and Claw, which is our pills, uh, which has Sue the T-Rex, the most famous T-Rex in the entire world, by far the best one. Uh, on the label, that took us several years to <laughs> get them to agree to, but uh, we finally did. Uh, we make that beer for the field as their house beer, kind of on the condition that we get to work with their anthropologists and ant- anthropologists. I probably got those wrong. Uh, <laughs> in order to make uh, some like a historic recreation stuff. So we've gotten to do some really fun beers with with their uh, you know fancy scientists. Uh, we done the chicha. Uh, we did a beer called Kingman, um, which was a uh, recreation of the first historic evidence, uh, written evidence of mold-based aquification out of China. Um, so that was super rad. Um, so just a bunch of fun projects. We're just, you know, we make beer for beer nerds. Um, we're not trying to be, you know, a pale ale for everybody. That's really not our, in our ethos. Right, right. Well, that's a good enough segue uh, to get into the meat of the matter and why we're here today. We're going to be discussing a, a brewery that I think is on a lot of drinkers' radars even now in 2023, um, who may not know that uh, it played a pivotal role in sort of shaping and reshaping the American craft beer landscape um, and in trying to be, you know, sort of uh, uh, more things to more people while also um, trying to stay true to some of the beer nerd uh, stuff that had had brought it there. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Goose Island, where, um, you know, you, I think, began your tenure uh, right at the turn of the last decade, two decades ago. Um, and you were there for this really seminal moment that um, took the entire industry in a whole new direction. And, and that's the, the acquisition in tw- uh, 2011 uh, by Anheuser-Busch InBev of the, uh, the remainder of Goose Island that it didn't own. This is the first kind of big, um, the big acquisition. Um, it sent shockwaves through the industry. Now we're, we're a dozen years out and this is kind of industry lore, I think, but for people who came to the industry, you know, a half dozen years ago or, or even less, um, they may not, they may not know the true story. So, uh, Thankfully, we have you here on Taplines today to tell us the true story in in your uh, in your view, of course, from your perspective. But it's a valuable perspective because you were there, right? So you started in Goose Island, at Goose Island uh, uh, in two thousand nine. Is that right? Two thousand nine, two thousand ten, somewhere in that range. Don't quite, it was there a while ago. Don't quite recall. Yeah. Um, what uh, were you were you brewing uh, commercially prior to that, or were you home brewing? How did you get in here? Gotcha. Uh, so I've been homebrewing for a number of years, just like a bunch of us. Uh, worked an entirely different career, uh, did that for a number of years and sort of hit my late 20s, looked at going back to school to continue professional licensure in the career I was in. Uh, and when you know, I was applying to doctoral programs all around the country, there's one out in Portland that I was really interested in, flew out there with my uh, you know, sort of then like living lady friend and interviewed with the school, did, did all that. Uh, and, you know, we came back here to Chicago, we sort of sat down and had dinner. And she's like, cool, like, if, if you want to do this, we're doing this, we're moving to Portland. Like, are you sure this is what you want? And we went, oh, fuck no. <laughs> it's like one of those, like, until you actually, like, look at where your life is and where your life is going and actually just have those moments of just, like, is this actually what I want to be doing? So just following the next, you know, putting your foot forward and taking the next step. So I, I just, like, actually just sat down and thought about it and went, this is, I don't want to spend the next six, seven years of my life 
uh, going back to school and doing what I'm doing. Uh, so applied to the Siebel Institute, uh, which is one of the, at that point, there was two main Berlin schools in the United States. There's a few more now. Um, so there's Siebel and uh, UC Davis. Uh, Siebel is also located in Chicago. Um, so applied there. Uh, they accepted me. Um, New Berlin School there, where I met my now business partner, Dave. Uh, so we did Siebel together. Um, after that, uh, when we got out of Siebel, uh, there was another local brewery just opening up. And, you know, it, at this time in Chicago, uh, there was basically three breweries, period. Uh, there was like Rock Bottom, Goose Island, two brothers out in the suburbs, uh, Mickey Pins up north. So there was very, very few breweries, um, very, very few jobs. So the uh, two breweries had opened up. Uh, they're the first breweries opened up in, I think, 10 years or something like that. Um, had been before uh, somebody else opened. Uh, so that was Metropolitan and Half Acre. Uh, Half Acre makes a whole bunch of hobby beers. They make a lot of really nice modern uh, stylings. Uh, Metropolitan sticks to you know very traditional German lager brewing, uh, which is something I, I very much deeply care about. Uh, so Metropolitan uh, was just opening up right when Dave and I were getting out of school. Uh, so we both were independently reached out to Metro. We had met them over, over the years when they were doing festivals and whatnot um, before they had actually opened up their production plant. Uh, and, you know, they were looking like we were two trained brewers who were looking to, you know, get our foot in the door and they were, were looking for help in any way that they could. Uh, so they were kind enough to let Dave and I hang out there where we got to you know, hone some of our lager brewing chops. And, you know, people does a really good job of teaching you the theory and science behind brewing. Uh, does not do a fantastic job of preparing you. It doesn't change you like how to change out a pump feel or that sort of technical uh, hands-on aspect. Uh, so Metro was fantastic letting us uh, hang out there, get to learn alongside them on the more hands-on aspect. Uh, yeah. So after Metropolitan, uh, I think I had run into Greg Hall. Um, so John Hall and Greg Hall were the, the family that ran Goose Island and owned it. Right. Uh, started it. Um, I don't remember where I ran into Greg, but I ran into him somewhere. And I met him several times throughout the years as well. Like we talked about, you know, Brett C and like sort of like, no interesting Brett strains and that sort of stuff. Right, right. So, oh, actually, now I don't remember what the story is. Uh, <laughs> ran into it. Goose Island used to have a uh, dock parties, um, so they would o- open up like the shipping receiving dock uh, to like retailers, uh, bars, restaurants, uh, liquor stores, that sort of thing. And everyone hang out. Uh, there's beef free beer. We all sort of mingle around. They would do those every, I think, once in the spring, once in the fall. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and ran into one of the dock parties after knowing him for a bit, being like, Hey, like I'm, I'm done with brewing school. I'm you know, interning at this like little local locker brewery. Uh, if something ever opens up, that would be great. I'd love to be considered. He's like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Like I can dig it. Uh, why don't you give me a call? Like later this week, we'll try to set something up. I'm like fantastic. Uh, then got drunk as a skunk. I was like 28. Something like that. I got drunk as a skunk at the, uh, dock party. Um, <laughs> Uh, tripped and fell uh, like after that, but like um, basically just like face planted. It was very embarrassing. I don't know why I'm telling that story. <laughs> uh, I, so, so then I, I, I know that Greg, game. Like, I know that game. Yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> I'm, I'm in my 40s now, so I've calmed down some. Uh, but basically, you know, when I had drinks with Greg to talk about, you know, if there was a future for me at Goose Island with basically a black eye, Greg's like, what's going on here? <laughs> Uh, good, good, yeah, yeah. Then about six months later, I ran, ran in, so did, did not get a decision at that point, which I, I don't know if I would have hired me at that point either. Uh, <laughs> ran again like six months later. <laughs> he took pity on me, 
realizing that was a one-off, not a stumbling around being a, a just complete jerk all the time. <laughs> uh, and uh, I got hired there to scrub floors and do sanitation work. Uh, and I was thrilled to do so and scrub floors for a bunch of years. Then, you know, my sort of quip is, you know, they liked how well I scrubbed the floors, so let me do all the barrel program stuff. Right. The two most important jobs at a brewery, yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, in fact, my, my job title, I never let them change it. Uh, the entire time that I worked there, I was just sanitation crew. Because, uh, like, that's still basically what my job title was now. Right. Only with running in the tap room, I get to, you know, uh, fix toilets and the, do all uh, that. The longstanding joke amongst sort of beer enthusiasts is uh, brewers are really just sort of malt janitors, right? Like, the, you're just constantly cleaning or whatever. This is, but you got into it as an actual janitor before you started brewing at Goose Island. You were obviously a trained brewer at that point, but you weren't yeah. brewing at Goose Island when you started. Yeah. No, not making work, not doing cellar work, just scrubbing floors, uh, cleaning out trench drains, basically all just like the grunt stuff that needs to get done. And is you know, super important of keeping the entire facility actually, uh, growing clean. Sure. Uh, Cause you know, it doesn't matter if your, if your tanks are spotless after you clean them, but your entire facility is dirty. You're asking for issues on the road. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. John, can, can you tell us a little bit about what Goose Island's stature was in the Chicago scene the Chicago beer scene. I mean, you described it. The Chicago beer scene was itself quite limited. Um, Goose Island was founded in 1988, I think. So it had been around for a while by the time you came onto the scene, 2009, 2010 or so. Can you tell me sort of like what your perception of Goose Island was um, as, you know, someone who's a professional in this space, but also as, as a drinker, like how, how are people thinking about Goose Island locally at that time? Uh you know, again, there were very, very few breweries as a whole. Uh, and Goose was cutting edge of what was happening. Uh, you know, they both had historical chops uh, in terms of, you know, selling beer since the 80s, running a, a long-term brew pub, uh, really starting uh, the modern craft movement here in Chicago. Uh, extremely well-respected. Uh, you know, people people still care about them. Like, they're still a very Chicago roots. Uh kind of hard to overplay how important Goose Island was in that beer scene. Um, and then in addition to just it, from the consumer aspect, you know, if you were, there was maybe 40 professional breweries in Chicago at that point. Um, and at that point, like if you wanted to learn how to get to brewing, you either worked at Goose Island or you worked at Rock Bottom. And if you look around the country at that time, like who was actually brewing anywhere? Uh, most of those brewers had come from one of those two training programs. Uh, so mm. I'm, I'm the I'm not the last in a long line of brewers that came through Goose, um, sort of midpoint to this point. Uh, but there's very many uh, very notable brewers uh, that were preceded me there and you know have gone on to do great things. Matt Brendelson, Robert Firestone Walker. Um, what, there's a whole bunch. Uh, so it's really hard to overplay how important Goose Island was at that point. Yeah. I'm thinking this is probably a little bit of a hackish uh, uh, analogy, but... I don't know. It's my podcast. I guess I'll make it anyway. Uh, <laughs> I can dig uh, it. You know, I think a lot of um, sort of like casual comedy fans, at least, are aware of uh, like Second City in Chicago as a place that, you know, a lot of talent winds up coming out of. And a lot of it winds up on SNL, winds up on other sketch shows. There's, It's kind of like a clearinghouse for like young talent before they go on to do bigger and better things in Chicago it sounds like Goose Island, at least to some extent, was where a lot of younger, like this generation, your generation of of brewing professionals, if they were in Chicago, the idea was, man, get a gig at Goose Island because that's where you, you kind of like 
you know, you upskill and you, you, you get your chops and then maybe if you stay great, if not, you're going on to, to maybe launching your own project. Yeah. And a whole bunch of breweries came out of goose. Yeah. Uh, perennial with, uh, Phil Wymore, um, Tom, Tom quarter, uh, so right. Penrose is a whole, whole bunch. Yeah. 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 So eventually you start brewing at goose. How did that happen? I mean, you were, you were scrubbing the floors. They liked how much you were scrubbing the floors. So they let you brew the beer. I mean, there had to be a little bit more to it than that. Uh, <laughs> they knew you, they knew you were trained as a brewer. What did you start brewing, uh, at, at goose Island? Uh, so whether or not you consider me brewing Goose Island is kind of a loaded question because I never worked on the, the main brew house. So I never did work production there. Mm. So kind of my career arc while I was there, uh, you know, sort of got hired by Greg directly. Um, who, you know, I do the same thing with new brewers uh, when they when they come to work for us. You know, is make sure that they start somewhere doing like grunt labor before they get to do the fun stuff. Otherwise, you get some like prima donna issues. Um, like, you know, brewing is not easy work. It's not, you know, it, it's, everyone thinks it's very glamorous. Uh, but it, if you like, you know, brewing in 95 degree heat uh, with, you know, basically 100% humidity uh, for 12 hours a day and then go clean after that, it's not particularly fun in the day to day. And you want people to realize that from the get go because a lot of people have this romanticized idea of what your days are actually like. Uh, so, scrubbing floors and, uh, you know, Goose had a, at that point, I think the largest barrel program in the United States uh, on the craft side. Uh, and I think at that point mm-hmm. when I started, they had 140 bourbon barrels and like 80 wine barrels, something like that. And that was like, whoa, like that's a ton. Yeah. Um, so uh, like we would do like 80 barrels, like beer barrels of bourbon county a year. Like it was not particularly large volumes. Uh, definitely not in comparison to what they're doing now um, and have been doing. Uh so when it came time to actually just empty all those barrels and, you know, do like the blending aspects of all that, uh, you know, we were a very small crew and uh, not like we were overworked, but, you know, people who were on the brew deck were on the brew deck, people who were in the cellar had a bunch of cellar work to do. Um, so I was just free labor uh, that could then fill in and start doing you know, the actual physical job of racking barrels out. So getting the beer from the bourbon barrels into a fermenter, making sure it was tasting fine along the way. Uh, so, you know, it really... <laughs> The I, I went from scrubbing floors to what then became like a very pivotal role, uh, just because nobody else had time to do it. Yeah. Um, so I really just fell fell backwards uh, into that one. So I consider myself extremely lucky. Uh, I was just in the right place, right time at the time. Uh, you know, maybe Greg had some more grandiose plans for me. I, I don't know, but I was definitely in the right place, right time. And then you know, would do a fine job doing the bourbon barrel agent stuff. Uh, so then the wine barrel stuff is much more involved, much more intricate. Uh, but because, you know, I was already the one doing it, I just started doing all the wine barrel stuff uh, at the same time. So that's where I really learned more about the more intricate aspects of blending. Um, I've always just very much enjoyed the traditional Belgian, uh, dynamic producers, goose producers, and like more of the funky saison stuff. Uh, so my palate's always been in that world. Um. So, you know, they, they liked the beers I was putting together and how I was doing it. So they let me do more and more. Um, and eventually, I was just pretty much my day would be like, you know, show, come to work. At this point, I, I'd stop scrubbing floors and whatnot. I was just, You'd moved on up at that point. Yeah. <laughs> to, to some degree. Um, yeah. Uh, it was pretty much full time on what we called the innovation team, uh, which was essentially all the brewers, but in the actuality, uh, 
you know, we have meetings and all the brewers would be invited when they were able to show up and have ideas, spit ideas, and we would riff off of those ideas to come up with projects. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed about working at Goose uh, was how collaborative all the processes were. Uh, I've gotten a whole bunch of, you know, acclaim and, and applause for a lot of work that other people have done at Goose. I've never tried to take any credit for what the beers that we produce because they were all a team effort. You know, I wasn't making the work. I wasn't doing the cellar work. I was just there to take the beer out of the barrels that somebody else already uh, made uh, off of an existing recipe. You know, I'm working off of the shoulders of other people. I was just also was I was the person out at the festivals. I became sort of the face of it for a minute, uh, and that was you know that was lucky, but that was not a direct result of only my work. I always want to be careful about saying that. Uh, yeah, noted. Yeah, totally. Team effort. I mean, brewing is mm-hmm. itself a team effort. And then, of course, if you're yeah. if you're working the in the barrel room, that is by definition not something you can do yourself because it's got the beer's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. So we had we would have inno team meetings uh, where everyone was invited to come and have ideas and express ideas. But then it became you know a couple of us on a, a much smaller team would actually have to make those things happen. Uh, so the day was great because I was sort of I'd show up, I'd go sit in Greg's office and sort of chat with him about just beer in general, it's like what we're working on and bring some stuff that we were you know, messing around with and sort of relying on him as sort of like the senior statesman of just like, where do you want this direction to go? Here's kind of what we're thinking. Uh, we just want to check in with you and make sure that, you know, what your idea of what this brewery is and where we want to be pushing beer is in line with what we're actually on the ground doing. Yeah. Um, and those, those uh, just times having coffee with him were just super influential in my life. Uh, of just having somebody who I think is particularly visionary in, in the brewing world. Um, you know, Greg can be kind of a load of character and not everyone feels about him as I do. Uh, but I think he, he's a, a very talented human being. And uh, I know I got a lot out of those meetings that really pushed me into becoming the brewer and having the viewpoints I have and sort of the hosts of actually going out and creating what I want those viewpoints to be. Um, and then after that, I would actually go do like real work. But, yeah. Right on. At at this point, John, do so like for people who may not know the chronology, we're talking right now, we're talking about your time at Goose in about 2010, maybe uh, leading up to 2011, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. And then and then beyond because you were all the way there through 2013. Prior to you arriving at Goose, relatively fewer people know that, you know, Goose Island had already sold a minority stake of its of its brewery to Anheuser-Busch through the um it was through Widmer I think was the actual detail but through this vehicle it was it was minority owned uh or one of the minority owners was Anheuser-Busch and then later Anheuser-Busch InBev obviously after the company gets taken over uh in 2008 um I'm curious John like at that time like was that something that like came up much like when you were working there did customers were they aware of that were, were workers aware of that like how much was that detail like in the in the ether at that point uh i think it's pretty accurate to say that i don't even remember that being anything uh, yeah yeah so it was it was not on our radar uh, you know there there's absolutely zero oversight from gi you know it was a it was a family-owned company owned by Dahl. I worked for them. We worked for them directly. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so it, it, it was a complete non-issue. What about um, we sort of like we're in the run-up right now? Uh, what we're talking about, like to 
what would later become, you know, sort of a buying spree that Anheuser-Busch InBev and to some extent Molson Coors and uh, Constellation with Ballast Point and a couple others would go on over the course. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, you got to cheer for someone losing a billion dollars. Yeah. Well, and someone and someone gaining it on the other side of that deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so the, the, in the decade to come, you know, we're sort of on the precipice, you know, temporally here, the, the period we're talking about is sort of like right on the cusp of this this massive sort of feeding frenzy of, of acquisitions as macro brewers, you know, try to get a piece of what is then like a red hot um, American craft brewing industry. Um, but even before, you know, that, that decade happened, there were already some sort of smaller acquisitions that had, you know, I think like made some news in, in the craft beer industry, which was still at that time coalescing. Um, you know, I'm thinking specifically about the the Craft Brewers Alliance with, you know, the Red Hooks and the and the Widmers of the world um, that did have, you know, exposure to Anheuser-Busch going back. I mean, God, I think Red Hooks sold in like maybe 98, I want to say. So like what I'm getting at here is that like this concept that macro brewers might want a piece of craft beer was not totally unheard of at the time, but you know, I mentioned like the minority stake that Anheuser-Busch had in Goose Island. You said that didn't, that wasn't really on your radar. Zooming out a little bit, like, was any of that on your radar at the time? Like, was that something that you worried about? I mean, in the decade to come, people would get obsessed with the idea of selling out and, and acquisitions and, and who owned what. Um, what was the, what was the vibe like at the time in that regard? Uh, not speaking specifically about Goose Island, but craft beer Just as, generally, as, yeah, as yeah. a whole. Um, at that point in time, you know, 2010 to 2012, somewhere around there, you know, you had some of these over older established brands who were consolidated together. I think Kona was part of that same uh, grouping uh, with Widmer and yep, uh, yep. whoever in the Steve Crocker's alliance. So you saw some of these older brands were band together. Um, that wasn't something they really like. You never looked down on them before. It's just that's how that's how they're succeeding. We're trying to hang on. But as a whole, like Anheuser Bush, Miller Coors, those sort of macro breweries were still looked upon as the enemy, uh, which mm. was an idea I, I took umbrage with even at that point before Goose Island had sold. Uh, just because I thought it was kind of old hat. So I, I really dislike defining yourself as not something else. It's, you know, at that point, you're defining yourself as uh, we're not the big guys. Like we'll right. talk about what you are, not what you aren't. Right. And you know, this is you know 30 years, 40 years into depending on when you want to consider craft brewing in the modern era to start. Sure. Uh, you know, this is not Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada uh, hustling to sell Sierra Nevada Pale Ale anymore. Those have, had been well gone by that point. But we were still hanging on, as, as, as craft brewers as a whole, in my opinion, we're still hanging on to this as the big guys are all bad. And we're the small guys. Yep. We're, we're the rebels and they're the you know evil empire and a Star Wars analogy bullshit. Um, right. I just thought that was really trite and overblown. Did I want Kuzan to get sold to Anastasia Bush? Absolutely not. That was not anywhere on our radar. Uh, I was as blindsided by it as anybody else in that brewery. Uh, we had no inkling it was coming and had very strong opinions about about it having gone through it. Uh, but before that and then afterwards, I've made some beers. Uh, I also reflect my opinions on, on big breweries. But as a, as a whole, craft brewing was very against big beer. But the reasons why were no longer as valid as they used to be in my opinion, because, uh, you know, they weren't looking to crush us the same way that they were looking to crush a early Sierra Nevada or an early, um, 
Sam Adams. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah New Belgium. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That like, like enough, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and there, and that was a period, right? Like in the mid nineties, you know, mm-hmm. you go back and you read the history, like Anheuser Busch. Yeah, Anheuser Busch came hard at uh, Boston Beer Company. They had uh, a somewhat disastrous. Boston Beer Company had a disastrous appearance on Dateline um, that really made them look bad. That was at the time like potentially existential for Boston Beer Company, but also, I mean, the industry is so fledgling. There's a lot of money rushing into the space, uh, and and there was a lot of bad beer, you know. So there's there's sort of this this moment where macro brewers and Hauser Bush in particular has maybe has an opportunity to try to crush this nascent movement. But to your point, by the time, you know, uh, 2008, 9, 10 rolls around, that dynamic is not as, uh, uh, as, as prescient or as poignant as it was, um, even though a lot of craft brewing industry folks and enthusiasts are maybe hanging on to it, or it's a useful dynamic. It's certainly a compelling yeah. marketing dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, 100%. And yeah. this is also just from my perspective as a brewer from that particular generation. Had I been brewing for 15, 20 years before, I may have a completely different opinion. Sure. Um, but, you know, craft brewers, you know, there's generations of us and things change every 10 years. And I think they have to change or should. Yep. Otherwise, they're not being innovative. Yeah, it goes stale. Yeah, no, totally. I remember I spoke with uh, Dick Cantwell, who was at Elysian, um, which was acquired by Anheuser-Busch in 2015, I want to say, 2014. And he said uh, something along the lines of like, or here, I got the quote here, quote, uh, it's a bit demoralizing to find out that they've managed to kind of hit us where we live, um, is what he would go on to say. I spoke with him in like 2019 or so. Um, And we talked a lot about, you know, this idea of like, generations of craft brewers and and how much does it matter to the next generation versus how much does it matter for someone in his generation where who is you know kind of fighting those battles uh mm-hmm. uh you know to your to your point like there's people have different attitudes about it depending on sort of where they land in the uh in the timeline but you land uh at goose island right at the end of the aughts and going into the teens um, and I think now is a good a time as ever, um, you know, since we've sort of talked around uh, the acquisition a little bit and, you, and your feelings on it and sort of how it happened. I was hoping that you could take us, you know, to the room, to the day, uh, if you were to the extent that you remember it. I mean, at this point, we're talking about something that's a dozen years ago. But um, when you found out, when you found out that that Anheuser Busch InBev was going to be acquiring the other fifty. Eight percent of uh, of Goose Island and was gonna was gonna wholly own this brewery that uh, was was so influential on the Chicago scene and that was was your place of employment. Do you remember oh, yeah. when you found out? Oh yeah, uh, it was right after uh, Brewers Conference, right after CBC. Uh, I think actually the papers got signed was during CBC. Uh, that's when it was in San Diego, maybe mm-hmm. probably San Diego. So we're a bunch of us are out there. Uh, we get a sort of email, uh, company-wide uh, meeting, you know, whatever Monday morning, whatever it was, at mm-hmm. you know, eight a.m. It was like for, first thing, uh, everyone needs to be here, uh, no exceptions. You know, they flew like I don't think they had to change their flights back or anything like that, but it was you know you get off the plane and go to sleep and come right back here. Uh, all the sales reps from out there, everywhere throughout the country got flown in. Um, it was you, everyone needs to be here. So we knew something was up. Um, and what I thought was happening, what a lot of us thought was happening, uh, was that John Hall was going to retire 
and Greg was going to take the, the brewery over. Uh, mm. That did not, that did not end up happening. Uh, Different succession plan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually getting a little emotional thinking about it. Uh, so we all get called back Monday morning. We're all standing around the loading dock uh, warehouse area, um, and people's phones start buzzing. These motherfuckers released it on Facebook before they fucking told us. Uh, so all the sales reps phones are dinging uh, with people who are like, what is happening? And we're like, oh, yeah, John, I'm probably going to sit down. I'm going to take over. And then just this hush comes over the room. So by the time that they actually came out and told us, we pretty much already knew. Um, but because they had released it on Facebook like 15 minutes before they told us, which was not a, not a wow. good move. Yeah, that was some bullshit. Um, I was, I was lucky enough that I didn't have a ton to do that day. So I was able to sort of get, I think an hour's worth of work done before just like, fuck this. I'm not working today. Mm. Um, I feel bad for the guys who are on the brew deck and whatever, where they had to just stick it out. Uh, but I was able to get out of there along with some other folks. Um, you know, they, they put as good of a spin on it as you could put on. And again, this was unprecedented. God, I fucking hate that word now too, after going through COVID. Uh, but <laughs> this was... This is a unique situation. This had not happened before. This is the first big buyout. Right. Um, and, you know, we're right there at Ground Central for it. Uh, I think we, we had some inkling that we, there was some, I'm trying to remember all this at once, but, but there was some inkling that something might be amiss uh, beforehand. Because I do recall one of the talks at CBC, it was telling sort of a brewery that went under, I don't quite recall why, mm-hmm. but one of the points that was being made during the conversation or during the lecture was that, you know, the brewers still have their own self-respect and they made sure that even though the brewery was shutting down, that the equipment was all left clean, um, which was a really touching thing. Mm. Uh, so I remember on the flight back, one of, the, uh, one of my other brewers, uh, we were all talking. He's like, no, if, if the brand is getting sold, if something like really goes wrong, we'll at least make sure that things are kept clean. Because, mm. you know, we all had a lot of internal uh, pride about working there with that brewery was. But they sold it to AB. Uh, I don't regret them for doing so. I don't know if I made the same choice. Um, had I made the same choice, it sold for 39 or some million dollars. So a, a pittance for what was going to be happening in, um, in the rest of the industry. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So our day of, we get told I was able to get the fuck out of there. And a few of us went over to uh, Big Star, which is one of our local bars here. Uh, we just started drinking bourbon and just commiserating. Uh, and, you know, we went through sort of a bunch of stages of grief aspects. Uh, you know, some people were like, I'm quitting today. Like, I'm not going to work for these motherfuckers at all. But I always felt that, you know, dolls took a chance on me and they showed me a lot of loyalty. And that's something I, I believe in. Um, so after thinking about it, you know, getting through the first shock uh, of, of the experience was, you know, I will give them the loyalty that they showed me and a lot of us. Like just giving us this chance, allowing us to sort of flex our wings. So I decided to stick it out, um, sort of agreed to stay on for like six months, and then ended up being there for another, I think, 18 months, maybe something like that after there. Um, yeah. And then by the time that I had actually left, I had always, always been working on a business plan of starting a, a brewery at some point, uh, along with Dave, my business partner, uh, after Siebel. Um, and you know, part of that was, you know, you really should work for another brewery and know what you're doing before you just start a brewery. Um, <laughs> right. and it was much harder to start a brewery uh, when we opened up and it became in the years afterwards, in fact, there was a whole bunch of breweries that opened up with people who had never worked in a brewery before. And I don't know, some of the issues I think we're having in craft beer currently are a result of that. People not coming through a feeder system and, and learning the, 
actual day-to-day aspects of brewing. Sure, but sure. That's a, that's a digression. But I agreed to stick around, and then by the time they actually left Goose Island, it was not because I was mad. It was not because, you know, I felt hurt. It was just I had accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish there, and it was time to move on and do something new. And that for me, that was running my own brewery. Yeah, and that would go on to be in 2013. You want you eventually do leave, and you and that's what became off color, right? Like you you go mm-hmm. from there straight to off color. Yeah, yep, yeah. Um, and I you know like gave notice to John Hall directly. You know, sat down and had uh, breakfast with them, same thing for everything, and that was that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, this was uh, uh, an upsetting moment for you. I mean, it's emotional even now, over a decade later. Um, do you remember sort of, you know, after that initial shock, what like the next sort of ripple was or the next shockwave was? Were you talking to other people in the industry at that point? Were, you know, were you hearing from other breweries at other places? Like, what happened after that initial sort of bombshell dropped uh, f- from your perspective? I mean, yeah, we were getting laughed at and ridiculed. You know, the, the rest of the industry was people were, were really happy to take pot shots uh, without yeah. considering what it was like for us as you know the actual employees. And that was also some bullshit. Mm. Uh, a lot of those people, I, I, I remember them clearly, worked at or owned breweries that then later sold. <laughs> Uh, so some, <laughs> I have some opinions on that, especially the motherfuckers who's, you know, like if you sell for San Miguel because it's not an American big brewery and that doesn't count because they think that you're not going to notice. It's like, sure. fuck y'all. Um, but yeah, a lot of people took a lot of pot shots at us. Uh, and I, I don't think it was fair. I, I don't think it was compassionate and I don't think it was helpful. You know, we could all have our opinions on whether or not it was the right thing to do. We all had our emotional reactions to it. Um, but to you know, be shitty to the people who had no our voice in the decision and just had to live with it mm. is just not right. Mm-hmm. It was not right. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that would happen again and again over the course of the decade as more of these acquisitions happen is, you know, there, there became almost a template to this or a cadence that became familiar to certainly to me as I was covering it, certain other uh, industry insiders who, who were observing this happening there would be kind of the initial announcement and then there would be these sort of like outpourings of, of grief or gnashing of teeth amongst both the, the other folks in the industry, but then also the customers who had been sold, you know, rightly or wrongly had been sold this idea that they were participating in a revolution uh, uh, by drinking, you know, craft beer, by drinking local beer um, and, and so felt, you know, like they had been sold a false bill of goods that doesn't, of course, doesn't excuse people being shitty on social media to, you know, the poor social media manager who yeah. obviously had nothing to fucking do with this. Uh, and it doesn't excuse people. I, I I'm going back to Dick Cantwell again, because it's such a vivid, uh, vignette, but like he said, he called them hate tourists, people who would like come to Elysian locations in, uh, in Seattle and like order beers and pour them out, uh, like, you know, like on the floor, like for the fucking, you know, like pe- the tap room employees to like deal with, right. And like stomp yeah. out. Right. Yeah. And like, this is like one of these things that like, it would become unfortunately quite familiar, but at the time goose Island is to your, no pun intended here is in the barrel and they're the first ones in and, and it's just something that you're, you're experiencing with no, uh, no, po- no frame of reference. Right. Yeah, then you look forward five, six years, and it's old hat, and 
a lot of what the playbook became, we saw it happening with what happened with us of how it gets presented, how it gets told, what they do. Like, oh, first thing you do is uh, you buy all the salespeople iPads. You try to like give them a new shiny thing. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you give people a bonus. It's like that, that sort of playbook of how you try to appease it and how, how you try to sell it. Uh, yep. Yeah. But it was being written at that point. You mentioned that some of the some of your peers in the industry, some folks had some not fair things to say or things you found that not to be compassionate, pot shots, playing semantics with describing which strategic partner, quote unquote, is actually doing the acquiring, uh, you know, all those sort of games. What was the reaction amongst the, the Chicago drinking public? Do you remember I mean, I hope you guys didn't get hate tourists, but do you remember like what the what the vibe was like? How they tried to pitch this to to uh, to the customer base, to the to the fans that had gotten Goose Island to that point. Uh, so at that point, the brew pub was still wholly owned, not sold to Anheuser Busch. Right. So people could still go to the Clyborne location. I think Brigley had been shut down at that point. Uh, people still go to Clyborne, and you know that gave. A lot of people are not lit of, well, I can still support Goose Island without supporting Anzu Bush by supporting just the brew pub. Right. Um, so I think that helped mitigate some issues. Uh, I'm sure that if you talk to people who are working at the brew pub at that period of time, uh, I'm sure they have more stories than I do about people being jerks. But I think that was like a nice way for people to sort of, you know, mitigate the blow to some extent. Um, I do not recall what sales numbers look like and how they got affected. Um, by the sale itself, I can say that the, you know, I worked on beers like Bourbon County and whatnot. People still wanted those beers. People still lined up uh, to get what they perceived as, you know, the fancy stuff. So it's kind of like, well, you have all these opinions about how we now work for the evil empire, but you'll still line up for the beers that you care about, but the other ones, because you can't trade them, you that that's okay somehow. Like that, you can have that cognitive dissonance inside your own fucking head. Uh, that that never really sat true with me. Yeah, that that's the beauty of it, John. Yeah, they never have to reconcile those yeah. two contradictory ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that being said, their pension's not held up in this. Their paycheck's not held up in this. Whether or not they, of course, yeah, it was it was a, it was a wild time. Well, um, tell me, you're working on Bourbon County Stout, obviously the the storied barrel age program that Goose Island, you know, was to your point was fairly you know, on the vanguard of mainstreaming this, this type of higher end, you know, limited release um, beer and kind of creating events around that release. Like we think of that as just de rigueur in the, in the craft brewing industry in 2023, but scroll back 10, 13 years. And and this was still something that was sort of being developed as a model of not just producing, but then also, you know, releasing these beers and and you're right. Like there's that that cognitive dissonance is exactly what it is. And I've observed it before. You know when I'm covering it or whatever, where people will have no trouble, you know, saying I would never drink anything that Anheuser Busch InBev, you know, owns, and then would be the first one in line at what is it Binnie's out there, like the the yep. you know for the for the release of uh, of this year's or next year's or whatever uh, uh, Bourbon County Stout, or they're the ones on Facebook doing, you know, sort of like ISO requests, trying to trying to buy bottles so they can do a, a, a Bourbon County Stout vertical, right? So like, there's this idea that, you know, Goose Island produces 
uh, an entire portfolio of beers and is, is, you know, these are now lesser than, but, but the, the, um, you know, because of the acquisition, but the, the Bourbon County Stout, uh, line remains sort of this on a pedestal for, for the consumer. I imagine that was quite yeah. frustrating for you. It, it was, uh, one of the reasons why it was particularly frustrating in addition to what I was here to talk about is the other beers that were not as, you know, sought after. Those are the ones that actually took the quality hits. Um, so Goose IPA went from being a Fulton, uh, our main brewery, Fulton, uh, went from being a Fulton-only project to they started making it at other, other Anheuser-Busch pro- uh, facilities. Uh, and, you know, they would, you know, when you make it a, a beer, you scale it up, it tastes different. When you make it a different facility, it tastes different. It's really difficult to do so. And they were trying to scale uh, some of the core beers at these larger plants. Um, and they would send back uh, taste for a taste panel with all of us, uh, the samples of what they were working on. And they were we would universally pan them. Not just out of spite, it's just this wow. is a completely different beer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, your Goose IPA is not what we make here. It's you could call it something else and be a fine beer. It's just not, it does not hit the brand specs and be a very strict brand specs. So even if we're trying to be petty, it's just the, the color is wrong. The, the hot character is wrong. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, they just stopped asking us for opinions. Uh, because it was, <laughs> it was clear that we weren't going to be passing it. Uh, and I, I don't quite recall the specifics, but I, I think if a beer got like a, not zero to hundred percent scale. If it got like a score below seventy, for example, on today's panel, you needed like a senior manager to release that beer for mm-hmm. sale, uh, and they stopped doing any of that with us, as I recall, uh, because it was clear we didn't like yeah. it. We didn't like what they were doing. It was not working, and they just didn't want our feedback anymore. So, like the things that you actually, the things that actually fucked up, people didn't care about. Uh, the things that people perceived them us fucking up on, like. Those those were not the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of irony. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, at what point, you know, like what you're describing, where like you guys are trying to give like decent feedback, and you feel like it's just not getting through, or they just stop asking, or whatever. Was there a honeymoon period before you know that that sort of friction began in earnest between the existing uh, the the remaining staff at Goose Island and uh, you know, the reps at a, or the, the folks who were handling the, the brewery at ABI, like, do you remember like a turning point there to that just kind of like develop over the course of like the, the ensuing months? Like, I guess I, at what point did it become clear to you that this relationship was not one that you wanted to be a part of? Uh, from my perspective, um, it was sort of writing a playbook of how other breweries would follow where you don't touch it for a year. You let the initial sort of shock get over. You let people kind of forget that it happened, and then you start messing around with stuff. Right. And it was it, it was about a year before they really started messing with anything. For the most part, it's just we love what you guys are doing. That's why we purchased you. Uh, we want to support you in any way we can. All we're trying to do is give you better access so you can do what you do better. And then about a year later, it comes around. They're like, "Cool. So here's what we're actually going to do." <laughs> um, yeah, because. It's it's verberated at that point. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I will say I got uh not it's not quite a little FU, uh, but you know, they said that they were gonna give us access to their entire supply line so we could get stuff we couldn't otherwise access. Um and you know, mm-hmm. I was at that point wholly working in specialized projects. Um uh, so I had a bunch of stuff where we were trying to extend it a little bit. 
Um, so we, you know, for example, we had a, there's a very, very fancy cocktail bar here called Violet Hour. Uh, Violet Hour had made uh, in a 52-gallon, 200-liter barrel, uh, made Manhattans in it, aged on the roof of their uh, their bar uh, for eight, nine months. I don't quite remember what it was. Uh, and then, you know, I'd known those folks, so we got the barrel that they aged them in, so we did a batch of Berlin County in that barrel. Um, so that was super rad. So, you know, we only have, you know, there's... 180 liters of, of this beer is super fancy. You can never make it again. Right. Uh, how do we extend this? I don't want to put it in just 12 ounce bottles and then also have it be distinctive in package size. So I've always been a fan of very small bottles. Um, so like, you know, Anchor uh, have been doing these like little, I think they were doing like 200 mil bottles and they did 180s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I always, always love that. I think they're super cute. I think they're really versatile. Um, and, you know, uh, all the big brewers all had like those little tiny nip bottles. Um, the so little AB had, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so AB had uh, ones where they just looked like a normal heritage bottle with like the slightly long neck, just shrunk down. So I'm like, I want those. And I think I was just trying to be a dick about it, just because I could, um, <laughs> and made them made them get me a pallet of those bottles. And they, I think it, whatever they ended up costing us was like an exorbitant amount of money and they did not want to do it. But like you guys said, we could get access to anything. This is, this is what, this is what we want. Um, and I finally got a bottle <laughs> or a, a pallet, those little tiny bottles. Uh, and they yeah, were fantastic. Yeah. We did, we would hand, hand rack, super special limited projects in there. And, uh, I don't know. I, I thought they were great. Um, in fact, we, now at off color, we uh, used 250 mil bottles for a small batch stuff. Um, so slightly larger, but still in that same schema of just having more smaller things better than having one bigger thing. Yeah. Uh, we also present it as a really specialty product. Uh, so we did a bunch of super fun beers in those little tiny bottles until one day I come into work. And, uh, you know, along with everything else that comes with being owned by a much larger brewery, came a bunch of other um, sort of bureaucratic oversights, not all of which are bad. Like having more student safety standards is not a bad thing. Uh, but there would you know, be just sort of universal audits. So, you know, packaging would walk through and, you know, count everything that they had and you had to justify why you had it. So one of the packaging guys caught in my one pallet of these little tiny bottles that we spent way too much money on to get. And like, well, we don't use these on, on our packaging line. Uh, clearly we don't need these. They're just taking up space and uh, destroyed the whole pallet. So I think, oh, no. the, yeah. So I think out of the several thousand dollars that we had spent on that one pallet, uh, only got you know maybe two hundred cases out of it or something like that. If, if oh, devastating! But, yeah, yeah. it's like I come in one day, like warm your little bottles. What the hell? <laughs> oh, what a tragedy! Was that yeah. was that the moment when you decided it was time to no. leave, John? <laughs> no, no, no. I thought I was. You know, that was when they went by me bees. But that's a whole other story. Well, what? Take us to the, uh, yeah, take us to the end. When, when did you decide it was finally time to go? I mean, like you, you know, you described here there, uh, you know, you felt loyal to the halls. You felt like they had done right by you. You wanted to stay on and not just quit in a, in a huff, even though you were very upset about it. Um, there was sort of, it sounds like a little bit of a honeymoon period where some of these sort of pie in the sky promises that, uh, were made to the staff you know, about having unlimited resources and ABI is going to be able to take us to the next level. It sounds like some of those maybe came true a little bit, or maybe there were sort of gestures towards that, but eventually things, at least for you sort of, you know, went South and, and, and you decided it was time to go. Can you take us sort of to that moment? What, at what point did you realize uh, it was time to find the door? 
Um, like I kind of mentioned before, I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. Um, so they, they, at that point, they gave me pretty much free reign to do almost whatever I wanted, which was mm. very flattering. And I was at the, at that point, there's kind of like scheduling releases, like you, you get six major releases a year or something like that. Like you, you tell us what they're going to be. Uh, and I was really happy to do so. They gave me a lot of uh, free reign in order to develop beers and work on beers with, along with our threats of our team. And I think we, we created a bunch of really fun projects. Uh, we also got to do a lot of really fun cultural stuff. So like uh, there's a fantastic beer festival here in uh, the Midwest called Greatest of the Midwest up in Madison every year. Sure. And, you know, people would do like these big blowout productions for it. Um, so we weren't the first to do it, but we definitely started upping the game of how involved you get, how the types of beers you're bringing, how many beers you bring, that sort of thing. We got to build a mini golf course at one point through our barrel warehouse uh, for a Chicago Craft Beer Week event. Uh, what? We got to do a lot of... Yeah, we, we built our own little uh, mini golf course. Uh, so you got to play putt-putt all throughout the whole barrel stack. Uh, it was, it was like, absolutely fantastic. All right, that's a silver lining. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, this is what the culture was like internally. Of like, I have this bizarre idea. I think it's going to be really like, impactful. I think it's going to make uh, you know our clientele really happy. And you know, we would get the rubber stamps that, yeah, how much money do you need? Um, as long as it wasn't an exorbitant amount of money, they would let us do it. Yeah. Uh, so it's like there's still a lot of local control. Um, you know, we had uh, an AB guy who was at that point direct, director of ops, uh, but he was kind of looked at us always like not like as errant children, but more like like a roving bad artist that you don't understand that you're supposed to be in charge of. Um, but a lot of times, just like uh, I'm not sure what you guys are doing, just don't fuck it up. <laughs> um, so like the day-to-day control was not as horrible as, as maybe I made it out to scene before. Like we still had a lot of autonomy. Yeah. But I'd done all these things. I made these beers and at some points, like it, 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 for my own internal professional development, it was time to just branch off on my own. Um, sure. They, they gave me the, the, the training ground to do so. And it was just, you know, it was that time to just leave the nest. So there was not like a moment where it's like, fuck it. I'm out. It was more, what, I don't know what I'm still doing here. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. time to, it's time to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at that point, the only way I could have gone would have been into a management role, uh, which is not what I wanted to do. Right. Um, uh, right. Yeah. And also you had the plans for off color that you were developing and then that was always for the plan. Yeah yeah. 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 So you move, you, you move on from Goose Island in 2013, you go on to, to found or co-found off color off colors had a tremendous amount of success on your terms and congratulations on all of that, of course. Thank you. John, last question for you as you sort of, you know, again, we're a dozen years out and um, uh, everything has happened in the intervening 12 years, right? There have been, I think Anheuser-Busch acquired something like 13 um, breweries over the course of the next nine years after acquiring Goose Island in 2011. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Constellation acquiring Ballast Point and a couple others. They just divested them. Uh, as we record this mm-hmm. podcast, Constellation just recently uh, decided to throw in the towel on their on their craft uh, uh, boondoggle and and is, you know, just going to focus on the Modelo rocket ship. Uh, Molson Coors has had Tenth and Blake. I mean, like there was just a lot of buying um, that would yeah. come after Goose Island. And, and Goose Island, to your point, was really the first main marquee uh uh sale you've had all this time to reflect and and you you know uh you indulged me in in dredging up ancient history that's clearly still 
uh, a little raw for you. Um, but I'm curious, like, you, so there's something you mentioned earlier in the episode that I wanted to just come back to by way of closing up is like, you said, you know, I don't know if I would have made the same decision that, that the halls made. And I, I don't want you to second guess what they were doing, but I am curious. It, it sort of gets to, you know, I, I want to hear how you, John Laffler, like, feel about this. Obviously there's some ambivalence on your part. I'm curious, like, do you have like a moral assessment of it? Do you have, you know, sort of a emotional assessment of it? Tell me like how this, this pivotal moment, not just in the beer industry, but also in, in your life, like, how do you sort of think back on this now, 12 years removed? Uh, so, so a few different things. Uh, one is a business decision, uh, for the not for the Hulls, but for AB and a whole bunch of the other larger brands. I think it's pretty clear that the whole thing fizzled. So they went on this huge buying spree for almost a decade and has not yep. become, I think, what they wanted it to become. I think that's patently obvious. Very clearly. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. One of the things I learned from it was the era of growing a brewery from a local to regional, regional to a national. Those days were quickly going away. Yep. Um, I had an inkling of that at that time when they started doing these purchases, being like, there's no way no one's going national anymore. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, and that really came to fruition. Uh, we did see a couple of breweries uh, who were, again, at the right place, right time, who were very much able to capitalize on people's animosity towards Goose Island sale. Um, I don't begrudge them for it. It's just they were there, like, they, they would not have grown had people not been mad about losing what they perceived as their local brewery or or international branding. One of my personal takeaways is, you know, I enjoy brewing itself, not selling beer, not growing a brand, none of that bullshit. I enjoy actually just making beer and getting it out to people to enjoy. And I think I learned uh, about right-sizing a brewery. Mm. At At our heyday, I think we made 8,500 barrels. I think we're, we're around like 5,500 this year, maybe. Um, off color, you mean? And yeah. Off, yeah. Uh, yeah off yeah. color. And it, for us, it's being under 10,000, over five, under 10, I think is a really good spot for us. Um, we have no aspirations to sell the brewery. Uh, we've gotten a couple offers over the years, um, including from some other <laughs> large brands, um, and just did not entertain them. Uh, that was. A while ago, after going through COVID and all this, I might think about it differently. Um, yeah. Yeah. That changed everything about running an on-premise business and all this, but that's a whole other, other conversation. Yeah. So for us, like being between like five and 10,000 barrels is a really good spot for us. All of our employees who are full-time, we're able, we're able to afford health insurance for everybody. We're able to give people vacation time. We're able to allow people to live their lives because there's enough revenue coming in. Um, when we had... Uh, you know, we had sort of outgrown our space at our original production plan. Um, so we could no longer do like these sort of mixed room beers because there weren't tank sites for it. We had to make Saison, which is at that point was our main seller. Right. I don't think it's a main seller anymore. I really wish it was. So we had looked at, we had to expand in order to keep producing the beers we wanted to do. Uh, Dave and I spent about a year doing business planning uh, in order to do what the next brew was going to be, which at that point was like, well, I guess you just scale up to like 30,000 barrels a year. You go from local to regional and did a number of months of planning for that. And then he and I just sat down one day and just like, do you really want to do this? Like, I don't really want to do this either. Yeah. Um, Cause at that point 
you're making the brewery in order to fund your debt and hire the sales reps you need in order to sell the volume that I'm producing. You're actually making any more money. You're just making more beer and having more overhead. Yeah, and um, more stress. Yeah, and and yeah. you can't stay at 30k either. You got to go up from there. That. That's not a good place to be either. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you listen to folks like Sam Calgione and whatnot, and it's like he's like, my house has been under like it's been as collateral for a whole bunch of like most of his life. I thought at that point wow, because yeah, you're always yeah. you're in that growth spiral where you have to grow in order to pay the debt in order you get to grow. Sure. Uh, we, went, we don't want to get in this rat race. Um, so that's when we built out our little tap room here. Uh, so we, we spent way too much money to, to be here, uh, but it was the right choice for us. And that was one of the lessons I think that I learned from the, from the GI sale is pick what your goals are and do what you want to do to achieve that goal um, without sort of getting lured in this idea of, you know, you have to grow just for growth's sake. Right on. Well, look, I think that's uh, that's a great place to leave it, man. Thanks so much for coming on on Tap Lines. It was a pleasure to have you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for uh, all these questions. It's not a subject I like talking about very much, uh, but I do think it's important history, uh, and I think there are a lot of lessons uh, for craft as a whole to take over. You know, looking back at history and you know figuring out where we're going to go next. Yeah, I appreciate that. But thank you for uh, the opportunity. Yeah, of course, man. I mean, and again, like it's not lost on me that this is not the most fun thing for you to talk about. It's very obvious. And, and so I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to to record this and get this on the record. And, and uh, you know, yeah, trust me to tell the story the right way. So thanks again, man, for, for, for making the time. You got it. Awesome. Have a good one. Cool, man. All right. Take care, John. Yep. See ya. Bye. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.